This is the Rock Island in Arkansas, a look at the once proud railroad, its operations in the state, and its legacy, told primarily by former employees or those who witnessed it firsthand. Well, the Rock Island line, she's a mighty good road. That Rock Island line, she's a road to ride. Rock Island line, she's a mighty good road. If you want to ride, ride it like you find it. Get your ticket at the station, Rock Island line. Coming up on this first episode, we'll meet people who worked for the Rock Island and decades after it was shut down are still getting together. I miss the Rock Island because every one of them, I don't care whether you was a superintendent or a yard clerk, you were family. It's just kind of like a family reunion. Of course, unfortunately, every year there's less and less of them. And someday there, someday there won't be any. This time I'd like to announce all of those that have passed away since we met last year. And I'll feature much of a 1988 interview I recorded with L.T. Walker, a legendary figure of the Rock Island who helped start these gatherings in Arkansas after the railroad was no more. I saw them go from steam engines to diesel locomotives and the steam engine was a fascinating, but we burned oil, and it was hard to uh, keep clean. That's just ahead. That train left Memphis is half past nine, pulled in the little rock at 849. Oh, the Rock Island line, she's a mighty good road. Rock Island line is a road to ride. Rock Island line, she's a mighty good road. If you wanna ride it, ride it like you find it. Get your ticket at the station, the Rock Island line. For nearly 80 years, the Rock Island was one of the major railroads in Arkansas, transporting passengers and freight. It had a huge footprint, at one point operating about 700 miles of track in the state that had originally been parts of 32 different railroads. Many who worked for the Rock Island called it a family railroad and say they didn't learn just how much of a family until after the railroad shut down. This is the Rock Island in Arkansas, an accompaniment to the book of the same name released by Arcadia Publishing. Here's Michael Hiblin. This episode is the first in a series of maybe 15 that I'll be producing, including parts of more than 30 interviews that I've recorded over the years, mostly with former employees of the Rock Island. I was just a kid when the railroad shut down in 1980. At the time, I was in second grade at Redwood Elementary in North Little Rock. Directly in front of the school was the Rock Island's busy main line between Little Rock and Memphis. I loved hearing trains blasting their horns while I was in class. I'd also watch them slowly roll by from the edge of my playground during recess. But that march... After five years in bankruptcy, the Rock Island was shut down and its assets liquidated. The disappearance of the railroad really struck a nerve with me. Eight years later, in 1988, after being assigned to write a research paper in high school, I decided to look into the Rock Island and learn more about what led to its demise. I read through newspaper articles at the Arkansas Gazette, a few books, but the most insightful source of information about what happened with the Rock Island and what it was like working for a railroad was an interview I recorded that year with former conductor and union representative L.T. Walker. It would be the first of many I'd record over the years during periods of on-again, off-again research. Finally, in 2015, I began work on a book that was mostly a collection of vintage photos while looking for original photos that might be in personal collections, I started attending reunions of former Rock Island employees. It was fascinating to see that they were still getting together decades after the railroad shut down and to see how they were still like a family. How you doing? Glad to I, see I, you. I, I'm a long way from home, look like. <laughs> yeah. But I see familiar faces, you're a long <laughs> way from home. Yeah. But it was with a sense of loss. I miss the Rock Island, but more importantly, I miss the people that work for the Rock Island because every one of them, I don't care whether you was a superintendent or uh, a yard clerk, 
you were family. You know, we were a family. That's John Henderson, who spoke with me at the annual reunion of former employees on September 26, 2017, in Sherwood, Arkansas. But he noted that their numbers are getting smaller. As you can see today, if you'd have been here 15 years ago, there'd have been tables set up all the way to the wall back here. We're getting few and fewer. Uh, here I am, 82 years old, and I'm one of the younger ones that's left. But we're still, Rock Island is still family. We keep up with each other. Uh, probably I, I email eight or 10 or 15 of them every day. And we send jokes back and forth, and we talk to each other back and forth. Henderson worked as a telegraph operator a train dispatcher, and finally a train master in Arkansas, Texas, and Oklahoma before a judge ordered the bankrupt railroad shut down. I'll feature more from him in future episodes. For that year's gathering, Jerry Oates, president of the Rock Island Club, was glad to see a good turnout. Glad to see him one more time. One more time. It's got a good crowd. We've got about 60 people here. Biggest crowd we've had in the past couple of years. Yeah, I thought it looked busier than yeah, last year. It is. It's a lot, lot busier. But we're thankful. We're getting older. They're dying off every day. It's been 37 years since the railroad shut down. Yes, sir. That, it, it, it seems like yesterday, really. He spent decades with the Rock Island as a clerk at locations throughout Arkansas and Oklahoma, eventually serving as the depot agent at Bauxite, Arkansas. But not everyone who attends the annual gatherings worked for the Rock Island. For some, like Bob Franklin Jr., it's a family affair. I would come with my mom and dad, and uh, then when my dad passed away in uh, 06, uh, I continued to bring my mom. Of course, most of these people here, I grew up with their kids, so, you know, it's, uh, it's just kind of like a family reunion. Of course, unfortunately, every year there's less and less of them. Yeah. And someday there, someday there won't be any, but, uh, I had kin folks. Um, I had an uncle that was, uh, uh, he worked out of El Reno. And I had a second cousin, he worked out of El Reno. So uh, we had family all up and down the line. Franklin had three generations of family members work for the railroad, with his great-grandfather even working for predecessors of the Rock Island, including the Little Rock and Memphis, which had acquired what was the first chartered railroad in the state. It would be sold to the Choctaw, Oklahoma and Gulf in 1898 to link coal resources in what is today Oklahoma with the Mississippi River in Memphis. Franklin had even been given the opportunity to work for the Rock Island with an invitation offered at Biddle Yard in Little Rock. My great-grandfather, grandfather and dad were on the Rock Island and uh, when I graduated high school in 72, my grandfather called and told me to come and eat lunch with him at Biddle. And uh, so I went over there and ate with him, and then uh, Grandpa said, well, the superintendent's upstairs, he wants to talk to you. So I went up to see him. Of course, Rock Island being a small railroad, everybody knew everybody. And uh, so the superintendent was asking how my dad was, and my mother and my, my sister. And he said, well, he said, your grandpa said you graduated high school. And I said, yes, sir. He said, I have a brakeman's job coming open next week. If you want it, it's yours. And I told him, no, I appreciate it, but uh, my goal and childhood dream was to be a firefighter. So uh, I turned him down, and let me tell you, when I got downstairs, Grandpa was livid. And had I known the Rock Island was going to shut down in 80, I would have went to work for him because I'd have probably been laid off in two years. But I'd have been the fourth generation to work on that section of the railroad. My great-grandfather, George Franklin, he worked originally on the Illinois Central out of uh, Alabama. Then he went to work for the Little Rock in Memphis and built the railroad. He was a, he was a track uh, gang. He built from Memphis to Little Rock, North Little Rock. Then he got a chance to go to work for the Oklahoma, Choctaw, and Gulf, and he uh, helped lay the track from uh, Little Rock to Worcester, Oklahoma, in the Indian Territory then. And uh, then when the Rock Island took it over in 1902, great-grandfather was made a roadmaster. 
and my grandfather, uh, James Otho Franklin, and uh, his brother, they were on the track game, Uncle Charlie, and uh, Uncle Charlie caught pneumonia in 1919 in the epidemic and died. But uh, then when my dad became age, dad went out in the engine service as a, as a locomotive fireman. And uh, he was with Rock Island until they shut down in 80. And uh, dad actually took, um, they went to Memphis after the shutdown and picked up all the locomotives in Memphis, brought them to Boonville. And I think he told me that they took uh, 12 locomotives from uh, Little Rock to uh, Howe and a crew met him at Howe, and they took the locomotives on into uh, El Reno for the uh, trustee. And then Dad went to work for uh, Missouri Pacific, which is now Union Pacific. And then when Amtrak started hiring uh, passenger engineers, Dad was one of the last passenger certified engineers in Arkansas, and he spent a, a wonderful career with Amtrak 11 years before he retired. But uh, the Rock Island was unique because uh, it was so small, birthdays were special for the sons. Uh, the railroad would allow the dads to take the sons on trips with them. So uh, it's funny hearing the older guys talk about places like Copper's Gap and uh, Jones Mill and places like that, because unless you were in the railroad family, you have no idea where they're talking about. But some of the stories about uh, things that happened were just, uh, it's something that, that you cherish uh, all your life. If you have a vulture plate, it's time to buy. For decades, the annual picnics have been held at Sherwood Forest, which is a large facility mainly rented for weddings, birthday parties, and the like. If you haven't bought your tickets for $600, we're going to give away. You need to come over here and say, Lewis, right after lunch, we're going to give away $600, $300, one pop, and $12.25. The former employees and their families eat lunch and catch up. There are raffles, but one key moment each year silences the room. Here's club president Jerry Oates going to the podium at the 2017 reunion. This time I'd like to announce all of those that have passed away since we met last year. J.R. Langston, he was a general supervisor, died in November 2016. Kenny Hall, a conductor out of El Dorado, died in, in, in November 16. Harrison L. Hawley was a carman. He died in December. Uh, William P. Bill Bristow, he was a carman, and he died in, in December. And William P. Bill Wright was a clerk. He died in January 17. A.R. McCracken, section foreman, died in uh, 2017, January. And Arliss C. Overstreet, a conductor out of El Dorado, he died in February. George T. Mays, he died uh, February 2017 at 98 years of age. And Willie Holcomb, a machinist, died in March of 17. Willie R. Davis was a section foreman. He died in March of 17. J.L. Moore Sr., he was a general car foreman at Biddle, uh, April of 17. Don Gent, who was vice president of this organization at one time, he passed away in May of 17. And J.Y. Jimmy Bounds, uh, he was agent, appointed agent at Malvern at one time. He passed away in May of 17. Do you, does anyone know of anyone else that has passed away that I haven't mentioned? Don Younger. We, yeah, we got him last year. Yeah, Don Younger. Yeah. Also, Hazel Ivy, who was uh, uh, Carl Ivy's widow, she passed away, and I think they're buried her today or yesterday sometime. And Clerk Harold Hackler. He, he passed away several years ago, but his widow died about a month ago. Harold Hackler, his widow, Dorothy. If you know of anyone that passes away or is in the hospital sick, let me know. I try to go see anyone that's in the hospital and I try to make all the funerals of, of deceased former employees and their uh, widows. So I need to know, if you, if you know, let, please let me know. Buddy Bryant is in the hospital as of today and he's expected to have surgery on his back in about two weeks. So y'all keep that family in your, in your prayers. Anytime there's a death, please let me know or sickness. And also, one other thing for me, if you have an email address, John Henderson needs that email address because that's the way we notify you of deaths, 
of sicknesses or anything like that. So we, and also about our meetings. So let John have your email address before you leave here if you haven't done so. Brother Bill Anderson. Well, it's good to see everyone here that's here. Uh, our hearts go out to those who are not with us. We have had a long, wonderful working fellowship and it's been, in my opinion, it's been a joy to work with you and some of you have just been real special to me and, and so uh, I know how that it is to uh, have loved ones that are absent from us now and we'll talk to the Lord about that in just a minute. We ask you to bow your head as we go to the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, as we come before your throne of grace, we do so, Lord, with grateful hearts for all of your loving kindness, your mercies, and long-suffering with us. We thank you for your love that brought to us a way of escape from this awful life that we had to live. We pray now, our Heavenly Father, that this day you might receive honor and glory from the men that walk upon the face of this earth, that glory that you so justly deserve for uh, coming here and, pay, and paying our sin debt. We ask, Heavenly Father, your blessings upon those who have lost loved ones, that you would draw them close to you and whisper peace to their hearts and their minds and help them, Lord, look up to you in the future you have for each one that comes to you and a free pardon of sin. And Lord, that their eyes may be on the place of, of glory where they are and see the rejoicing in their hearts and the happiness and joy they have where they are. And Lord, that we might look forward to joining them in that day with the same attitude that we have today to bring you honor and glory. We ask now you forgive us our faults and failure. We know that there are many, and Lord, that we are unstable as we walk on this earth. But we thank you, Lord, for your Son that walks with us and keeps us and helps us to turn from the ways of the evilness of this world to the ways that would be pleasing to you. We ask now for forgiveness for our sins. Love us freely. Help us, Lord, in our walk. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Bill. One other death that I forgot to mention was Dick Easterly, conductor Dick Easterly, I mean engineer Dick Easterly's widow passed away about three or four months ago. There's, there, the man is ready for us to eat. There's two lines, form a line on each side, and eat to your heart's content. Take all you want, but eat all you take. And with that from club president Cherry Oates, members of the Rock Island Club loaded up their plates and sat down to eat while continuing to visit. Former brakeman Bill Anderson was the one there delivering the prayer. I'll have more from him in just a bit. I'm Michael Hiplin, and you're listening to The Rock Island in Arkansas. One of the key people responsible for creating this group after the railroad shut down was L.T. Walker, who worked as a brakeman, then a conductor. While the railroad was still operating, he also played a vital role for employees, serving as local chairman for the union. Everyone at these gatherings knew LT. They might joke about him a little, but he was a beloved figure who died in 1999. I interviewed him 11 years before his death. But before I get to that, I'll share this comment from Joe Rook, who, like most people who worked for the Rock Island, was officially known by his first two initials, and last name, J.P. Rook. But like most employees, he was also given a nickname. His was Buzzy. He was a brakeman, then a conductor, and worked with LT for 27 years on the Rock Island. This is from an interview I recorded with Joe Rook in December 2004. Oh, uh, LT. I worked with him quite a bit. And, uh, LT's a fine fella, but he liked to talk. <laughs> Why did he ever? We would we would leave Hot Springs in the car. We had usually we'd go over there and have a car and drive back home, and then drive back the next day to bring the train out. And he'd start telling the story when we left the Hot Springs and when we got the biddle out there. He was still telling it. Never <laughs> never finished up. <laughs> but everybody everybody got a kick out of old LT. He was really a, 
everybody misses him. He's he was the main one of that Rock Island Club here. He he been been for him while they wouldn't be one. And uh, of course, there's not near as many as there used to be. A lot of them have died. You know, it's been what twenty four twenty four years. Yeah, we meet at Sherwood Forest out there, and and uh, of course everybody visits. You know, and get a bunch of railroad men together, and they all got a bunch of stories to tell you. Some of them are true, and some of them aren't. <laughs> he never got in a hurry. LT didn't. A lot of times he'd get. I'd get aggravated. We'd want to get up and get going, get home early, and he'd just kind of poke around, you know. But he uh, he was a good fella, really a good fella. He'd been in on a lot of a lot of stuff. He when he was the local chairman, he's the one that was the union representative. That if anybody got into trouble, while well, he took, he would represent them. And then if there was any kind of deal came up about. Uh, uh, Practices that weren't safe or something, you know, he he took care of that, and he was a good man. He, LT, see, I went to work over there in the shops in 1951, and went out on the road in 1952, and LT went to work in 1942, so he had about 10 years on me, a lot of stories, and of course back during the war they had they had hired a lot of men, but there was some, several. Fellas that were older in age, and when the fellas come back from the army after the war, why well, they went in ahead of them. They kept their seniority when they were in the service. And uh, LT had he had about ten years more experience out there than I did. Joe Rook's daughter was one of my best friends in high school, and he referred me to LT. His full name was Leonard Tillman Walker, and as I said, he was the first Rock Island employee who I interviewed. In later years, listening back to those tapes, I realized the value of recording these oral histories. It was December 10, 1988, when I sat down with him at his kitchen table in North Little Rock. I'd just started working in radio at the time, and thankfully had the foresight to record the conversation. I started my cassette going and asked him how he became interested in railroads. I'd always like trains. Even though we didn't, I didn't live where there was a train, we could hear the Rock Island trains blowing from about six miles or seven miles across the mountains. We could hear them by night, and even in daytime, we could hear them trains blowing. And I'd always fa be fascinated about trains. And when I get a chance to go to Boonville, why, we would always used to go to the depot. My aunt and uncle would take me take me to the depot down there and let, watch me watch the switch engine work and also the passenger trains and freight trains come through. So I was always fascinated about trains and uh, and that's the reason I I guess I wanted to, wanted to go to work for one, own one rather. The Rock Island ended up being the only company LT worked for. Uh, I happened to be the, the railroad I was on and I just... Uh, I found out what seniority was, and his World World War II was going on, and I had some military training at Camp Pike and Camp Robinson, and I just like one month in the summertime having my a commission as a second lieutenant in the Reserve Army. So I came back from New Mexico in 1942, and I thought I'd and they called me up for service, and they told me that I had chronic sinus trouble, like, and they rejected me. And the draft board put me in 4F, and they called me up about every three to six months, to, and then they'd turn me down again. But I found out what seniority was during the meantime, and I thought, well, when the war is over with, why, maybe I'll still have a job if I had to go off to war. So uh, that's the reason I stayed with them, and, and then they had a, the pension planned, and that's the reason I stayed with them and found out it was a, you know, there's good railroad to work for as far as I knew anything about railroading. He started at the age of 25. Uh, August 18th, 1942. At the time, I thought it was kind of funny how he remembered his first day, but later I learned the importance of seniority dates for those who worked for railroads. After I hired out, well, I had to go... Uh, uh, get my physical examination, which I passed, and and then I had to make my student trips, which took me about 10 days or two weeks. 
first trip I made was from uh, Boonville to uh, Biddle, which is a yard, Rock Island Yards at Little Rock. And uh, I made it a trip with, had an engine, a 3000 type engine, which was a 2102. And it was a 10 wheel drive, and then we had a 3232 with a passenger engine. They used on on passenger train, so we got up on the engine at Boonville, and uh, they thought I was a fireman, being as I was ignorant of the fact. Why, I I fired one of the engines all the way to Little Rock, and the fireman showed me how, and I got to Little Rock to sign my student's letter away. Found out I was a brakeman, and he sent me to the yard office to get the conductor to sign. So we came out of Boonville on a double header, a big long train, and then I. The next trip I made was made trip started to Camden on a local freight train and, and conductor put me up in the cupola and and he uh, we had a another man uh, he was a Choctaw Indian he was on the head end Cody and the first time I ever saw him and we went we started to Camden and and we got to Malvern and. The conductor told us we had plenty of time after we got their train built to wait for another train. We'd go get a haircut. Instead of that, while we was getting a haircut with the train left, and left us both there and carried our grips off. To, so we had to go, uh, had to come back uh, to Little Rock the next day. But during the meantime, while the con- a conductor had us, uh, is on a Malvern switcher, has to work down Malvern. With him, we worked the rest of the day at Malvern. It got dark where well, we didn't have any lights, and we worked till dark with another crew. And one of them's name was uh, first conductor on the switch engine was uh, Lonnie Crownover, and the second was Tom McCoy. So after we got dark, we couldn't work, so they, he told us to go up to the hotel and go to bed. So we, we went to the hotel, went to bed, and so the next day when the train came through, well, we made it back to Little Rock, and then the next trip we made, I had to go to... Uh, El Dorado on a local freight train, which was a always oh, a heavy work. We just worked every place and had a 2536 big steam locomotive. And we started working out here at Benton and worked all the way to El Dorado doing local work. And then we got to El Dorado where you couldn't find a place to sleep, so we they put cushions on the floor and we slept in the caboose on the floor. And I got back to Little Rock, well, then they sent me to uh, Brinkley, and I had to go to Brinkley and, and made a trip to Memphis. From Brinkley to Memphis, I rode a through freight from Little Biddle to Brinkley. I got off and worked a local freight train from Brinkley into Memphis, and, and they was teaching us how to get in the yard. They had lots of signals and clocks we had to wind from to go down and to get in the yard. But that night, while well, they sent us to, uh, they put us, Put me on another through freight train, 991, and we came to uh, back to Little Rock. Then they told us to come back in the uh, Monday or sometime and get the book of rules. We so we had to take the book of rules, and there was about half a dozen of us got marked up, and I had to go on back to Boonville and get me a a, a bar to watch and a lantern. So they'd have a watch the lantern. You couldn't get a watch. You had to have a pocket watch, and it had to be at least a 21 jewel, and just it had to be a Hamilton or, or Elgin. Those good watches would pass the Interstate Commerce Commission. So I made my first trip to Hot Springs at, on a turn, left Little uh, Biddle Yard about four o'clock, and went from there to uh, Hot Springs and back. Turned around job one day. And that was a long, long-hour local, we called it, 16-hour local. That was my first trip. That's L.T. Walker. In later years, I've made a point to ask his former co-workers for any stories about L.T. Bill K. Robbins, who was a brakeman and conductor, shared this at the 2016 picnic. And here he refers to L.T. by his initials, as well as his middle name, Tillman. L.T. Walker was our local chairman, and L.T. always wore a comber cap and overalls and 
mostly white shirts. Sometimes they were colored. But anyway, Tillman caught the job as a conductor on the Hot Springs Local. And so he put on a fedora rather than a comber cap. So the, the guys on the switcher were down there at the little depot shelter and shall we say uh, they had anesthetized themselves to the heat and what have you. Anyway, uh, they looked up and saw this guy coming wearing a fedora and he scared them. They thought it was an official. Well, Tillman showed up down there and Buzzy said, Good Lord, Tillman said, you look like a Louisiana clap doctor. And that nickname stuck with him to the day he died. I'll tell you what, a lot of people didn't like LT, but when they got in trouble, they wanted LT. And I, I was a rare brakeman for LT for a long time on that Hot Springs local and some other jobs because LT would talk to me about various investigations and things he'd been into. And that's one reason why I got a good insight into our contract was just talking with him. So consequently, he re retired, and everybody was hollering at me, hey, 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 what about this? I said, y'all paid attention. Uh, and uh, so it was, it was a real education for me working with Tillman. And of course, Tillman uh, comes from up, uh, he comes from the metropolitan area I own Arkansas. Now those that look up a map, look on uh, Highway 23 south of Boba between there, about halfway between there and 71 Highway is the community I own. And Tillman was a very good football player. So Waldron paid him to come to Waldron to school and he got a, uh, a football injury. You notice he had a kick. Well, that's where he got it was from playing football at Waldron. So, but uh, everybody, every official knew LT and they always knew he was fair. Consequently, you couldn't have a better man in an investigation representing an LT. Needless to say, LT Walker witnessed a lot of changes over the decades. I saw him go from steam engines to diesel locomotives, and they was a, a diesel loco uh, was so much more cleaner. And the only thing about it, they they could pull more uh, heavier trains, and then the steam engine was a it was fascinating, but it was, it was a, a, we burned oil, and it was hard to uh, keep clean. It, most people back then wore overalls, and they had, the uh, time you got to Memphis or Boonville, El Dorado, uh, climbing up and down an engine, why you'd be, uh, have grease all over you. And the diesels, uh, they just kept coupling the diesels together. They'd have several, several, Diesel, you know, just keep on plugging them in. We used to say to each other, and you just keep pulling more tonnage. And the trains got longer, even though that cut out lots of lots of jobs, because they couldn't pull it, you know, with one steam engine. Where uh, diesels, maybe they'd take two or three trains. Where we used to steam engines, they couldn't have but one unless they double head. And if they were double heading, uh, they'd have two engine crews and. And if they had a tonnage over the large engine, why well, they would pay us, uh, they would give us double miles because we didn't have a, a, another train. I was just taking one train. That was in steam engine days. And then they come on up from uh, telegraph operators that were where we get our train orders. Why? Then they went to using telephones and uh, we'd get our orders by, by telephone and they put dispatcher's phones all along the siding and we'd uh, we'd call dispatcher and find out about trains that we were supposed to meet and uh, of course that would replace the telegraph keys and uh, had to know how to operate the telegraph uh, in order to uh, you know, talk to dispatcher with, uh, with keys and then they uh, in later years why we got the communication by way of radio. And that was some, and then they blocked signals uh, where we could tell whether there's a broken rail ahead of us or not, or another train ahead of us. And before I retired, while well, they, uh, we didn't, a flagman didn't have to flag except to opposing train. And from the rear end, the train coming from the rear, why, 
you didn't have to furnish flag protection where all those other years that we used to. But they are block signals. Of course, if you was on what we call a dark railroad where there was no block signals, why well, you would have to furnish rear end protection, which you'd, that meant you'd have to have a flagman. He'd, when you stopped or slowed down, well, he'd have to throw a few Zs. Of course, when I went to work, they had the, they had had the rocket train. That was actually one of the, one of the first streamlined trains in the country. The rocket trains was, for what I understand, and that was back uh, about 19 and 40, I guess, 39 or 40. <clears throat> and then they uh, uh, they made a few switch engines, small switch engines they used in the yard, which they used a small steam engine, which the Rock Islands did had some of them. But they had about one or two uh, little diesel switch engines. That was in the early 40s. Then they used steam on passenger trains. At the rocket train, always had diesels on it, diesel. And then we had uh, along about 19 and uh, last of 49, I guess it was 1949. We had uh, they got freight diesels. That's what we call a covered wagon diesel. And it was uh, this Alcoa locomotives and. Most of them have a A units, which had a cab on both ends of them, and then put a B unit or as many as you wanted in between, and and you could go into a terminal. You wouldn't have to turn the engine around. All you do is just the crew would get on the other end and and, and go back, and there's lemonade going around the wire or a turntable, and uh, it was up in the 50s, and they started getting uh, all about 1950. while they uh, they started doing away with the uh, steam locomotives all together except a few they use a few just for emergency emergency work and they kept them for a long time then they came out with what we called a alcoa a slang word for it was a jeep a locomotive and it was a the engineer had to kind of shift gears with it so they finally got away from that uh they they you could couple up as many of them as you wanted to together and operate them from the head in. The only thing about them, they was just, uh, they didn't have a big cover over them and everything like those others, in those covered wagon. Now those covered wagon, see they had, uh, you go back in the engine room with those things and uh, you go back in there, the only thing about it, they was, they was so noisy and they had a flush toilets on them those locomotives did, those diesels, those covered wagon diesel. And, uh, of course, they had a little old toilet up in the front end of these Jeep, we called them. But uh, they they were powerful little old things, but uh, easy to get on. It's easy, easy to use for brakemen or switchmen. They were real good. But those covered wagons didn't have a footboard, and they was hard to work with as far as working concerned. And another thing that was hard was to get them on uh, – you take your grip and crawl up on one up on the side of the engine you couldn't already uh the doors on the door on each side the only good part about them was those things you set a way up high and if you had a car or a truck and you could see yourself if you was going to turn over or something why well, you just open the door and throw the train emergency and you could just hit a log truck or a big truck and just run in the back end of the the engine room with those big engines. And as far as safety, they was a lot safer than those uh, little Jeeps engines. And safety was indeed a big concern for L.T. Walker. Among those who worked with him was Guy Winters. I spoke with him on February 7, 2016, at his home. At one point while working for the Rock Island, Guy was being promoted from a brakeman to an engineer. But his first new assignment in that position came before the railroad made it official. I even remember being called for a uh, hot springs turn when I was not promoted. And I showed up at the roundhouse. Well, lo and behold, here come L.T. Walker. He was a conductor. And the L.T. asked me, he said, uh, uh, the engineer ought to be showing up here in a little bit. I, I meant uh, 
LT was a good friend of mine, I'd string him along a little bit. And I said, yeah, I expect him, he'll, he'll show up here in a little bit. And LT said, well, golly bum, I wonder, I wonder who, who it is. I said, LT, you're looking at the engineer. He said, guy, you're not promoted. I said, I'm aware of this. I said, the road foaming of engines, W.H. Stivers called me and said, would you please take this job as an engineer? I know you're not promoted. Be ultra careful, ultra careful. And I'm going to instruct L.T. Walker to ride the engine with you at all times. And he said, I know you can handle the trains. And uh, I said, I'd be happy to. He said, I can't emphasize how much I want you to be careful and blow these whistles at crossings long, long. He said, we don't want to hit any cars, especially when you're not promoted yet to an engineer. And LT all the way out to the locomotive there in the middle shops getting ready to couple onto the train. He says, I don't like this at all, guy. <laughs> he says, it's got me nervous. I said, well, they, they won't say, I said, it's been cleared with, with the officer handling the engineers. He, he called me, said he was out of engineers. Would I please take it? And he said, okay, well, in the story, we made a complete successful trip, uh, hot springs and back to LT. I thought he was going to have a heart attack. Yeah, he was, uh, he was big on safety. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. LT. And in fact, later in his career with the Rock Island, L.T. Walker served in a position looking out for the well-being of employees. I think Rock Island was really probably just as safe as uh, the rest of them. Of course, in later years, uh, they, got, they had a lot of wrecks. But they, when the railroad was real good and I first went to work, why trains was running real fast and then I was on the safety committee for years and years, and uh, we would try to report everything, you know, and try to keep things up. Of course, there's some, it's pretty hard to get things done a lot of time, but you just keep on after them, and they'd, you'd eventually get it done. Some of the section foreman would call, they'd holler at me and say, here comes the safety committee. <laughs> of course, I, w I was representing the conductors and brakemen, and I was, because I was looking after their interests, you know, as well, as well as my own, everybody else. His knowledge came from first-hand experience. I've been in several, several accidents. The first one that I was ever in was uh, down at Malvern. We had a train load of gravel, and it was real cold morning down below zero. And I was li living at Malvern, and we went to work, and we'd gone to the river, and we got about 15 loads of gravel, and we had a 1,700-class steam engine. And we started to, uh, uh, we went down to the river, the gravel pit, and weighed all, uh, and brought the gravel up there and weighed it. And we, uh, we had air <clears throat> through the train. We checked the brakes, and uh, so this was January 1943. And we left Malvern. We got a big run at the hill, which is we had to get a run at the hill near to pull the hill. It was, uh, and had such a heavy load of uh, gravel. There's building air bases over around Carlisle, Stuttgart, and they was using that pea gravel in the building those runways. And we got to Butterfield there. Why we topped the hill at Butterfield, and we had sent a flag over by. Uh, Cody on a motor car with a section man and he's holding all trains till we got there. Well we got to Butterfield and we topped the hill at Butterfield up there where Cody was standing and the engineer was named Boggs, Floyd Boggs and Henry Adam was the conductor and uh, of course I was one of the brakemen and another boy named Tommy Garner was the other brakeman and uh the engineer went to set the air, and uh, and we couldn't stop. And we went sliding down the hill, and just before the, we hit the hot spring main line off the Camden main line, while we hit uh, 
there was a derail to protect the hot spring main line because they run passenger trains and freight trains and everything over that. Well, he couldn't stop. All we had to break on was the engine and, the, and the, the train line had froze up. It was real cold and it had been down that river water and uh, they had froze up even though we had air when we was old Malvern. And so we hit uh, this locomotive was a, uh, it, it had a four, had four pony trucks, four wheels up at the front. And then it had, uh, then it had three or four, I forget, I just, maybe it had four drivers, but it didn't have any trailing trucks. And then you tender back there. And so, uh, we we went we saw what would happen. He was going to turn over that derail. Well, the derail. Uh, yes, we got the derail. We all started jumping off, trying to get off. Well, we was in a cut. And we had to climb up the side of the wall, yeah. and uh, uh, just a you know wall where it was cut and it was froze over. I know I was laying on my stomach and everybody else was and we. Uh, trying to, and I, I I thought the the cars went derailed too, and the engine, the pony trucks hit this derail, and and derailed them. Well, the drivers were sliding and they slid the derail off, and we hit the hot spring main line down there. Why the 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 they turned sideways. These pony trucks turned sideways, and when they turned when they turned sideways, why that hit that hot spring main line and it tore that, was tearing that main line up. It was so heavy and so the engine was turned over. Well, cause I was already off. I was watching it from where I was trying to crawl up the bank. And the engineer was, uh, he, he tried to get off and uh, uh, he, he did get off before, before it turned over, but it was turned over when he jumped off. But we managed to get off without any, you know, without anybody getting hurt. And, but I could just feel those, I could feel that car hit me in the back and everything else. Of course, everybody was, you know, everybody was scared, really scared. And uh, so we had a hot spring main line blocked and, and they had to send a wrecker, we call what was a big hook. And they re-railed it and they had the, and the hot spring limited, which was a passenger train from Chicago to hot springs. It had the, then it had diner on there and, and Pullman cars. It was really a nice train to run between Hot Springs and Chicago. So that that was the first encounter I had with it, with with a wreck. I'll have more dramatic stories from L.T. Walker in future episodes. He was fortunate to have retired a couple of years before the Rock Island was shut down despite the economic troubles in those final years with the railroad in bankruptcy, LT said he never thought it would end the way it did. I didn't think it'd go out of business. When I retired, I thought they'd stay in business for another 100 years. And uh, I retired in 1978. I had 426 months. That'd be 35 years and six months. Uh, and I was lucky I never was cut off. We had good business, had real good business. One key thing LT did in the following years, which kept the former employees of the Rock Island together like a family, was to organize gatherings every other month of what was called simply the Rock Island Club, usually in banquet rooms at local restaurants. He also organized the annual picnics, which would draw even more people, many traveling from great distances to be there. L.T. Walker died June 18, 1999, at the age of 82. But the regular gatherings continue, at least as I record this, in the spring of 2018. Finally, here's Bill Anderson, who worked as a brakeman and told me this at the 2017 reunion. He, he was a talker. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. L.T., you know, he was our local chairman. And he was down there one day. Uh, uh, with the super, superintendent uh, talking about a problem that was had on the railroad uh, with men 
and LT, LT was their representative, and he was down there, he'd go, <clears throat> uh, uh, stretch his neck, uh, and he would do that. Finally, the superintendent said, oh, the hell with it, LT, go ahead and have your way. <laughs> and he hadn't said much, but he, he delayed it. <laughs> but LT was a super fine person in himself. He was a super fine person. He was uh, our club president here for years. And it, while he was, he had a speaker to come speak to us every, uh, Monday, every Monday that we met. And he went around over the town uh, talking to the businessmen and getting uh, prizes, promotional deals from each businessman. He'd bring them out there and use them as door prizes then on a rock hall, on a club meeting. He made it rather interesting because uh, uh, he was really active. Uh, it's not that our current president is not active. He is, he's one of the best men you might ever meet, the one we've got now, and as well as LT was. But uh, things are going along fine with the club. Of course, our membership's dwindling all the time. And like the picnic here, we had 61. We used to have 130, 140, you know. And of course, uh, I, I suppose the uh, normal thing is that we're going to grow fewer and fewer every year. But uh, we have 61 today, and that's just uh, a good blessing. I've met a lot of old friends that I haven't met for years. That's Bill Anderson, who spoke with me in 2017. I'll have more from him in future episodes. You've been listening to The Rock Island in Arkansas. This program is an independent production of mine. If you have any comments or corrections, I welcome them. The best way to reach me is by email, michael at hiblinradio.com. Thanks to the duo Fret and Worry, who stopped by KUAR to record their version of the song Rock Island Line. Thanks also to Jay Bradley Minnick for offering his advice, Kevin Kilpatrick for voicing the introduction, and most of all, thanks to all the employees who have shared their stories with me over the years. If you enjoyed this episode, I hope you'll subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, or you can listen to each episode on my website, hiblinradio.com. I'll have a lot more stories that will hopefully tell the bigger history of the Rock Island. Episode 2 will look at passenger rail service in Arkansas and an effort to try and save a century-old Rock Island depot in the town of Perry. I'm Michael Heblin. Thanks for listening. This is the Rock Island in Arkansas. Yeah, the Rock Island line, she's a mighty good road. That Rock Island line, she's a road to ride. The Rock Island line, she's a mighty good road. You want to ride, you got to ride it like you find. Get your ticket at the station, the Rock Island line.